Hello, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I want to welcome you to the Sounds True podcast, Insights at the Edge. I also want to take a moment to introduce you to Sounds True's new membership community and digital platform. It's called Sounds True One. Sounds True One features original, premium, transformational docu-series, community events, classes to start your day and relax in the evening, special weekly live shows, including a video version of Insights at the Edge with an after-show community question and answer session with featured guests. I hope you'll come join us, explore, come have fun with us, and connect with others. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. I also want to take a moment and introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation, our nonprofit that creates equitable access to transformational tools and teachings. You can learn more at soundstruefoundation.org. And in advance, thank you for your support. This episode of Insights at the Edge features Andrew Holacek, friend, author, meditation teacher, and retreat leader. Andrew has a gift for making some of the deepest teachings within the Tibetan Buddhist tradition accessible, understandable practices. He draws out the practices that we can do, and he takes us through them in a friendly way. Practices in the area of dream yoga, sleep yoga, and the art of dying. With Sounds True, Andrew Holacek has written a new book. It's called Reverse Meditation, How to Use Your Pain and Most Difficult Emotions as the Doorway to Inner Freedom. Andrew, welcome. Tammy, it is so great to be with you again. Such a delight to spend some time. Really appreciate it. I'm going to start with a quote from Reverse Meditation. Great meditators learn to savor hardship Mm -hmm. rather than avoiding it because pain provides a heightened opportunity to accelerate the spiritual path. Tell me about that. How can our pain accelerate the spiritual path? Right, right. Yeah, good one. Well, I mean, think about this for a second. What does growth feel like? I mean, I'm really interested in growth and transformation. What brings it about? What catalyzes it? What perhaps retards it? And I can tell you from my experience, I don't grow when I'm fat and happy and sitting in the sun, drinking my margarita on the Yucatan. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I like it as much as anybody else. But I would suspect that you and many of people listening here um, might agree that we really grow when we're being stretched. And so when we're being um, invited and sometimes even pushed out of our comfort zones, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where growth really takes place. And for people that are really interested in psycho-spiritual development, um, spiritual elites, and they don't have to be, right? I mean, the aspiration is to make these sorts of practices available to us. These are the ones, especially in the tantric um, or alchemical traditions, that really look forward, savor these moments of hardship um, because they can really stretch us out of our comfort zones and into the growth arenas, into the growth zones where transformation really takes place. So there's so much to say about this, but um, maybe that's a good start. 
But I think, you know, Andrew, there's a lot of confusion mm -hmm. because at the same time, you hear people say, get involved in meditation uh -huh. because you're in pain. Right. You have a lot of anxiety. You have a lot of stress. You're all caught up in the mind that worries. Meditation's going to help you and it's going to get you out of this distress. Totally. And yet now you're talking about growth as this embrace of discomfort. So help me understand this yeah. paradox. Yeah, good one. So, you know, the first thing we need to do is, is understand that when we talk about meditation, this is a multivalent term, right? It's a little bit like sports. So when we say sports, like, what are you talking about? I mean, there are hundreds of sports. And so in the West, usually when people think about meditation, whether they know it or not, they're probably thinking about mindfulness. <clears throat> Fantastic. I mean, it's an amazing practice. Um, but meditation has so much more to offer than, than mere mindfulness. And just parenthetically here, really mindfulness sedates. It doesn't liberate. And so in a world that's on fire, sedating and chilling out is a really good thing. I'm not dissing that at all. But what I might invite is a larger embrace of the entire meditative curricula where we can transcend and include something like mindfulness. And, and so in this particular journey, mindfulness is the platform practice. That's where we start. There has to be some level of so-called pacification, some level of relationship to the contents of our experience using that practice. But then, whoa, we're invited to go so much further, so much deeper, where we can, in fact, say yes, a kind of radical acceptance to whatever arises. And so I playfully talk about in this book, the cultivation of a kind of industrial strength meditation, right? Industrial strength mind, which is, and also mind and heart, same thing in both Sanskrit and Pali, same word. A mind and heart that's big enough, open enough to say yes to whatever arises. Um, and if we can actually do that, throwing a welcome mat out to even the most unwanted experiences, this is where you can really accelerate your psycho-spiritual path. Now, you mentioned mindfulness as a platform mm -hmm. practice. And in the introduction of reverse meditation, you start and you say, okay, let's familiarize ourselves with mindfulness, but then let's go to open awareness. Yeah. And then we go to reverse meditation, which is what we're going to be talking about. But help our listeners understand the progression sure. and why the understanding of this progression is important. Yeah, that's really key. Because otherwise, you know, the, the, the radical invitation of the reverse meditations are crazy, right? Well, you're asking me to do what? You want me to go directly into my Biggest physical pain, my greatest emotional hardship? I don't think so. And so what I attempt to do in this book is create a kind of infrastructure of understanding, the doctrinal basis, drawing on a bunch of the world's wisdom traditions that support this kind of approach. And then most importantly, this book really is a, it's a kind of a practice manual, or as I write about, it's a kind of repair manual, a way to repair our adverse relationship to unwanted experiences. And so in order to make these reparations and preparations, we start with it, the basic pacification practice of mindfulness, incredibly important. Without it, forget it, you're not gonna do this other stuff. But then you take this, I think, amazing step into the practice of open awareness, which is a remarkably powerful practice that fundamentally allows us to um, 
create an atmosphere, um, a container, a holding environment that is really large and spacious and accommodating. And it fundamentally allows us to rest with a level of equanimity upon whatever arises. And so that practice itself, I spend, I think, two chapters on this because it is really key. Developing this attitude, this is a wonderful statement. You may have heard it from a Krishnamurti. I think it's such a great statement when he was allegedly asked in the latter stages of his life, you know, 70 years of teaching or something, what's the secret to your unflappable contentment? And he said something beautifully disarming. He said, I don't mind what happens. That's an amazing statement. And so the practice of open awareness cultivates it. It is the practice of I don't mind what happens. And so with that in our um, kind of platform, then we can progress finally into the reverse meditations where we say, okay, I don't mind what happens. Well, let's take this a step further and bring in voluntarily, volitionally on our terms. And this is something where we can talk about the actual practice. How do you work with these things? Bring unwanted experiences, both emotional and physical, on into our experience, on our terms, and then basically establish this much more open, equanimous relationship to it. And so, you know, these practices are a little bit more, um, you know, just a little bit more advanced, a little bit more kind of graduate school practices where you have to have or strongly encourage that we have these preparatory practices underneath us. So that by the time we get to them, and then as we'll discuss, there are four stages of the reverse meditations themselves, then we take these baby steps. Then we can actually titrate. We can, we can use on our terms, bring into our experience on our terms, levels of discomfort that we can relate to. And then if we do that on our terms, we become familiar with our relationships to this. I talked so much about contraction. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that. But if we do that in the practice room, then when we enter the stage of life, we start to perform. And my experience with the really good news and my experience with these practices, personally myself, and then teaching them for quite some time, is they are incorporated quite quickly. I think part of it's because of the rather intense nature of these practices, that they're downloaded into our soma and, and quite literally embodied and incorporated more quickly. But again, the practice of mindfulness, the practice of open awareness, really important before we step in to the reverse meditation proper. Andrew, how did you first get introduced to reverse meditation? Yeah, yeah. So I was introduced to them in um, over 25 years ago in my three-year retreat, which is a traditional training in the Tibetan Buddhist um, kind of curriculum. I was locked up in, in a monastery retreat center in, in Nova Scotia, Cape Breton in particular. And I, in, in a, a set of lofty practices that some listeners may be real, uh, familiar with called the Mahamudra teachings, these are considered some of the highest teachings in the Tibetan Buddhist approach. I remember so compellingly when I was doing these practices, it was just a small little riff on reverse meditation. In particular there, what they did, I remember so clearly the invitation was to create voluntarily as many thoughts as you possibly could. I mean, make your mind as wild as you possibly can. And, and I said, whoa, now this is new. This is something I can relate to, right? Okay, so here I go. I finally get to do somewhat tongue in cheek, what I've always wanted to do in meditation, which is just like, wow, let my mind go. And I found it, I just found the practice like, this is really interesting. And then I started to explore it and I realized, man, there's like nothing else out there on this topic. Yes. There's what are called charnel ground meditations. Those are somewhat similar. The idea here, and again, it's helpful because there is some further doctrinal 
and traditional underpinning here. A chiral ground is traditionally a place, um, as, as you know, India, Tibet, Nepal, that is archetypally represented as the most unwanted of all locations. So a place where cadavers would be put out, rotting in the sun with hyenas and hawks. I mean, you can just imagine this horrific environment. And great meditation masters, including one of my main teachers, Kempo Rinpoche, I mean, they would do a lot of meditation in the child ground as a way to work with these unwanted circumstances. Today, in the West, something would be perhaps an emergency room or the site of a, a natural disaster or some accident kind of thing. Um, and so even those are those are slightly extreme instances, they are traditional practices within the, the Tibetan Buddhist uh, kind of curriculum. And so it was really in the three-year retreat that I was introduced to the term, I was introduced to the practice. And then when I came out and started really reading and working and teaching a lot on death and dying, that's when I started to really see these practices. And I started to culturally adapt them a little bit, bring them into the arena of what is arguably the most unwanted experiences in life, old age, sickness, and death. And I can speak with direct personal experience. And that's where my confidence and con conviction really comes from. Um, because even though I've done exhaustive literature analysis and study and, and also other traditions, my real confidence comes from my intensive exposure and practice to these. And then the experimentation, like, okay, I wonder, geez, let's try it this way, let's try it this way. And so I can I can speak very specifically about really intense physical, like kidney stones. Is there anything more painful than that? I brought these practices to bear on that and it radically transformed my relationship. And when my first marriage was falling apart, that's a pretty big heap of hurt. I was able to bring the spirit of these practices into that emotional turmoil. And then I started realizing, wow, in this day and age, when there's so much divisiveness, there's so much contention, there's so much or contentiousness, there's so much anger and just upheaval taking place. It's like, wow, these practices could really help in this dark age. And so that was the inspiration in trying to share these with others. I think you're you're very right about the time that we're in and mm. how useful these practices are now. I noticed when you talked about, you know, we can formally practice them and we're going to introduce the, yeah. the four steps and people can sort of invoke pain on purpose. I thought to myself, you know, most people, if they're honest, can probably find something in their experience without having to do any special invocation. <laughs> Right. You know, I mean, you you briefly used the term contraction. Con yeah. We can find some part of us that perhaps is feeling, uh, I'll use from my own experience, and we can talk about it, but like mm -hmm. a little anxious oh, yeah. about something. And I can sense there's a quality of contraction in that I'm open and it's porous, but there's also some quality of uh, wrinkling yeah. all in. So talk a little bit about sort of the everyday contractions that oh. we can bring to reverse meditation. Yeah, Lordy, now, now we're starting to get to it. And, and this again is, this also wonderful topic that substantiates supports the importance of the practice of open awareness. Because what, but what both mindfulness and open awareness do, but in particular open awareness, is they create successive contrast mediums that allow us to see things that we haven't seen before. So very briefly, the stillness and the stasis of mindfulness meditation creates a contrast medium that allows us to better see the frenetic activity of our minds. And this is why as a meditation instructor, you probably experienced this yourself, 
that so many beginning meditators say, oh my gosh, meditation's making things worse. I never had so many thoughts before. Uh, yes, you did. You just never saw them. And so these, these practices bring these unconscious manifestations into the light of consciousness where now we can start to relate to them instead of from them. And so open awareness does this even further. By inviting our minds and hearts to be so open, we can better see how closed we are. So these practices are, are simultaneously diagnostic and prescriptive. They will show us how contracted we are, how speedy we are, and then they will provide the antidote. And so therefore, if we have these within us, then we start to become increasingly sensitive and sensitized the things that we never felt and seen before. So in this case, contraction. And so I, I don't know, two, three chapters in the book on contraction. This is a big deal. Um, and again, this has been a marvelous set of revelatory and sometimes painful discoveries over 20 plus years of doing these practices where I start to look and I talk about these as the super contractors. The, the, they're the contractors like, for instance, if you think about um, anger, you think about fear, or even anxiety. The invitation with open awareness and then supported really with the, with the reverse meditations is to take a really close look. And this is not just a, a, a kind of a cognitive look. This is a visceral examination. This is a somatic felt exploration. Notice what you feel in your soma, in your body, when you feel these heightened um, kind of adverse emotions. And so then what I do is, is I try to point out these ubiquitous, what I call omnipresent supercontractors, the ones that are really exaggerated in this day and age, right? Anger, fear. Oh my gosh, can you think of anything more contractive? You start to identify them. And then you can start to relate to them. Because if you relate to it that way, you can prevent the reactivity that is no relationship at all. You can replace that with that reactivity with a play on words, response ability, the ability to respond. But so once you're sensitized to it, if you get a, literally get a feel for it, then you start to work your way down. And this is where it gets really interesting and really profound. Because it's not like they say in the Hindus that, you know, the Hindu tradition, you know, turtles all the way down. It's contractions all the way down. And so once you get a feel for them, then you start to realize the other levels of supercontractors that are taking place every time you're distracted. That's a form of contraction. Every time you complain, that's a form of contraction. And you start to realize like, whoa, I had no idea. I was so contracted. Well, you can't solve a problem you don't even know you had. And this becomes key when you get to the reverse meditations proper, because what actually transforms simple pain into complex suffering is our contraction against it. So if we can establish a relationship to it from these gross, more overt levels to these increasingly subtle, and these, Tammy, maybe we can go to this later, they go really subtle and they go really profound all the way down to what I, I label the, the primordial contraction. And I'm, I'm just going to posit this out for our listeners, just perhaps like, what is the primordial contraction? Like, what is he talking about? What could that, what does that feel like? Well, if you really take the time and effort to explore through the practice of open awareness, the actual primordial contraction, it feels like me. It feels like the very sense of self. 
And so if we can work our way down, turtle by turtle, contraction by traction, all the way down into the primordial contraction, whoa, now our, we're not only liberating ourselves from conventional spiritual, I'm sorry, um, conventional emotional and physical pain, now you're able to liberate yourself all the way down to the deepest levels of spirituality. And so this is where we'll talk about later, the fourth stage of, of the reverse meditations come into play because they will take you all the way down to this primordial contraction and then replace that with this quality of expansive openness. And that is no small thing. That's actually quite a discovery. Now, Andrew, I want to make sure that this is translating okay. uh, for our listeners. And I'm imagining someone who says, I don't get what Andrew means by contraction. I don't right. get when he says that word. I don't actually know what he's talking about. What's right. he talking about? What does he mean when he says his contractions all the way down? I got lost here. Can you help yeah. us? Yeah. Okay. You ready? Boom. Did you notice anything? Huh? A little bit extreme. Apologies. Pay attention. Simply pay attention. And again, at first glance, because we don't pay attention, we're trained in the art of non-attention and distraction. These particular insights may not be available to us. <clears throat> and so therefore, on one level, like you're saying initially, this can, this can seem somewhat theoretical or maybe even philosophical. Well, here's the kicker. It only may seem theoretical or philosophical simply because we haven't experienced it yet. And so therefore, what you're pointing out here is actually quite important. This is why the platforms of both mindfulness and open awareness are really quite key here, because I can do my best in, a, in a, an hour podcast with you to try to point these things out um, doctrinally, right, through just talking about it. But the real traction of these teachings, the real traction, the real power of this book comes through these meditations. I mean, everything literally comes to life and then even to death when we start to engage. And so I would simply posit to the listeners, take a look, take a look, feel into, reflect. Any moments of fear, what do you really feel in moments of fear? Like when I bark that out, panic, what do you really feel within your body? Anger, anger. And this, by the way, just briefly, can really help us understand why when things are falling apart, and again, I see this a lot in the death and dying world, anger is such a common response. People will unleash on caregivers, they'll unleash on loved ones. Why? Because when you're falling apart, one of the most reconstituting of all emotions is in fact this anger thing. And so this has a lot of explanatory power in terms of our behaviors and, our, and a, wild, a wide array of human experience. But um, it's, you know, like I mentioned, just to reiterate, starting with the, some of the more exaggerated manifestations of this, and part of what makes it difficult is exactly where you're intimating is the ubiquitous nature. There's, they're, they're so constant outside of the, these overt moments of anger, panic, and fear. These other, what I call super contractors, what, what makes them so challenging is their constancy. We don't have the contrast to see them or feel them until we do these types of practices. And then, like I mentioned earlier, this is when they come to light because now you have that new contrast medium. Now you start to see, and more particularly, you start to feel. And the minute you start to feel these things, well, that's where the growth takes place that we talked about before. I mean, we change, we grow when we feel things. 
you can talk to your blue in the face. This is the really negative pejorative end of philosophy. It's like, whoa, I mean, how far is that going to change you? You change, and I invite you, look at growth, look at change. We change, we grow when we feel things. And so therefore, these practices are really, they're very gritty, street-level, somatic, embodied practices. They simply invite us to feel, to wake down into a more sophisticated relationship to both our emotional and physical pain, and then in so doing, radically start to transform it. Well, I have to say, Andrew, I really liked it when you had your explosive shout. Uh, that that's no, that was very enjoyable for me. So thank you. But I I, I want to talk about what I was feeling as okay. you were describing letting go of contraction at deeper and deeper levels, all the way down to the primordial right. contraction, right. which is the sense of self. Mm -hmm. So what I started feeling was a type of endless spaciousness. Beautiful. And then I thought to myself, great. How am I going to live like this? I can't yeah. live like this. Yes, I, can. I can't live like, can you really live like that? I need to come back and, you know, formulate and other things. Like, don't we need kind of healthy contraction to operate as humans? Absolutely. Spot on and high five. And so this is where you need an integral approach. This is where you need to realize exactly like you said, that we need contraction to survive. I mean, on a biological level, our heart contracts before it expands, our muscles contract in order for us to move, our diaphragm contracts in order for us to breathe. If we didn't have contraction, we would not be able to operate. So you have this incredibly healthy manifestation at the physical level, and you also have really healthy contraction at the behavioral, psychological, psycho-spiritual level, where the ability to contract is part of what discipline's about. It's a part of health, healthy boundaries. It's a part of healthy saying of no. So the issue is really one of relationship. What we want to do is simply centrifuge out, and, and again, in an alchemical way, transform the lead into the gold. If we let the contractions kind of usurp their domain, where they have a particular highly applicable domain, as I mentioned in, in all these vectors of, of human development. But if, if these kind of vectors kind of supersede their domain, that's when the issues become problematic. So again, we honor and incorporate the healthy iterations of contraction. We need it. But then we also realize, hey, wait a second. You know, these unhealthy manifestations, boy, they in fact are unhealthy. And so I want to return to what you said earlier because it's spot on. This is what you're talking about is, is a, a really important um, topic, both within classic Hinduism and Buddhism, where on one level, there is this kind of um, arc of openness, the arc of returning to whatever you want to call it, emptiness, dharmakaya in, in the Buddhist approach, excuse me, turiya in the Hindu approach, really helpful to be able to open, to expand, to mix one mind, one's mind with space, that kind of thing. But as you well know, there's near enemies everywhere. And if you just hang out in that space, boy, that's spiritual bypassing. That's spiritual materialism. And that's a really kind of a disembodied spirituality where, in fact, it can become kind of pathological. And so with the backing of these incredible non-dualism traditions, 
then the invitation is exactly like you're saying, Tammy, <clears throat> is or intimating. You take the spaciousness, you take that, that um, openness, which has now been actualized, nurtured within your being, and then you re-inhabit your form, you re-inhabit your speech, you re-inhabit your body, you re-inhabit your action. And therefore, this, uh, this kind of transcendent quality then becomes imminent, then it becomes embodied. And now your spirituality is complete, because otherwise you're just like, really, you're kind of halfway there. And this is a really common spiritual trap where people, I mean, it's like Almas said so beautifully, when people start out on the spiritual path, they're unwittingly setting out for heaven. You know, they just want to feel good. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that, but get back to me on how you bring that heavenly quality when your world goes to hell. Where's your heaven then? And so that's my, my invitation and slash goosing or challenging is, what do you do with these amazing beatific, blissful, so-called spiritual states of mind when your world is falling apart. Where's your meditation then? Where's your practice then? And so to cultivate this industrial quality of meditation, industrial quality of mind, then we, we expand, we stretch, we go, hey, let's, let's invite, let's bring in everything. Um, let's, let's raise our gaze, open our hearts and minds to an extent that we can radically accept whatever arises. Then we bring our insight, we take heaven, we bring it into hell, we mix dirt with divinity. Now we're talking real spirituality. Now we're talking about spirituality that is not only an expanded sense, but now it's also much more complete because you no longer have to go into retreat armed with these types of skill sets. Basically, you can enter a kind of lifetime retreat within your everyday life because you have these embodied um, technologies that allow to bring even those experiences that you probably previously deemed anti-spiritual, right? I mean, spirituality is, is, is defined in terms of contrast. There's that word. And so if we expand that horizon, this is like I mentioned in the introduction to the book, playfully. By putting your meditation into reverse, you will actually find yourself going forward. In other words, when these practices are embodied, and I can tell you from my experience, they accelerate the path, they catalyze the path, because everything is now welcome onto the path. Everything becomes grist for this mill. And boy, for me, this has been a game changer, because when I left my three-year retreat, one of the great challenges and invitation was, okay, that was a terrific three years of amazing meditative experience, but how do I stabilize this? You know, meditation is fundamentally remedial work. The real practice, so to speak, is the performance of life. How can we bring these technologies, live them, embody them, bring them into our speech, into our actions, into everything we do? I think that's the uh, complete um, authentic spirituality and, and the non-dual wisdom tradition seem to support this. All right, let's go into the four steps okay. cool. of reverse meditation. And we can imagine that somebody's working with something either emotional or physical. I mean, you mentioned heartbreak. Yeah. That's a big one, how you worked through it. Uh, physically, you mentioned kidney stones. So you gave yeah. us two pretty extreme examples. But I think most of the time, 
someone in their life can say, you know, at this moment, I'm triggered by something, I feel reactive or I have a neck pain, something's going on. Take us through the four steps with whatever might be going on for the person at this time. Yeah, when you, you actually said something quite compelling here in terms of contraction, relationship of contraction to triggering. So this is another way to, to, be, to become sensitive to the, the omnipresent nature of these um, contractions. And one is when you're triggered. Notice, I invite you again, take the tires, take a look, find out for yourself. Notice what you feel when you're being triggered. I betcha you're gonna find some level of contraction. And this is a really, again, just briefly, the really cool thing about the contraction thing, once you start to become sensitized to it, you understand a little bit the kind of narratives, so to speak, the thematic nature of these, you start to see these things everywhere. But in terms of the practice, so let's get, let's get practical here. So there are four stages to these practices. And the first one, and again, the nice thing here is you can stop at stage one. You do not have to work your way through all four stages. Each one, again, this theme I mentioned earlier, transcends but includes the previous one. So each one goes a little bit deeper, gets a little bit more profound until we enter the fourth stage, which I'll spend a little bit more time talking about where pain can really become truly spiritual. So the first step is the, the observation. Um, let's say you're in pain, or, or if you wanted to take an example. So when I'm teaching these classes um, and doing seminars on reverse meditation, usually what I do is I will invite the person to do something that's uncomfortable. So we do a little bit of a mindfulness, a little bit of open awareness. We do the preparatory stuff. And then I say, okay, we're going to invite some unwanted circumstance into our lives on our terms. And so I'll say gently, bite your lip, gently bite your tongue, maybe dig your fingernail into your thumb, something like that. Don't chomp on it, man. I mean, if you do that, you might want to take a look at that, right? We're not cultivating spiritual masochism here, but we want to initiate something that's, you know, discord, dissonant, uncomfortable. And so then the first stage is observe it. Just simply cultivate this witness awareness. And so this allows us to differentiate, not dissociate. That's the near enemy of differentiation is dissociation. That allows us to gain some space, some perspective. You know, we get, we get a, a higher beat on it. So step one, in a certain way, is we step out briefly before we step back in. All in the spirit of wanting to become familiar with our pain. Now, this is a very interesting term because in the Tibetan language, the very word for meditation is G-O-M, gom, literally translated as to become familiar with. That's an amazing definition for me. Meditation is to become familiar with. So in this instance, what it alludes to is we want to become familiar with an inevitable lifetime partner, which until we've done a practice like this, we've probably not spent the time doing it. Why? Because when we hurt, we want out. We don't want to, you're telling me what? Want me to go in? Yes, I do. So first step, briefly step back to get a better beat on it. Observe it. Establish a witness relationship to it. All kinds of interesting things are actually revealed if you do that. And some people will find, hey, this is great. This in itself is, is really, really helpful. So 
if you want to go a little bit further, the next step would be pull a little bit of a U-turn. Now you start to actually enter it. And so the second step is, is simply be with it. Sidle up next to the pain, whether it's emotional, whether it's physical, basically um, embrace it. Embrace it. The trick here is not to indulge it. And you notice this starts to happen when the discursive commentary starts running in. You know, you're just, you're just all kinds of chatters coming into play. Initially, that's completely normal because everybody stumbles when they first do this. Everybody's faking it. What am I doing here? Am I doing this right? Because we're so unfamiliar with this kind of new relationship. We are walking into new territory here. So I want to say at the outset, we want to be kind, patient, curious. In fact, I would argue that this is one of the kindest practices you can do for yourself. Um, and by that, what I mean is one of the kindest things you can do is speak and live the truth. And when you're feeling pain, one of the best things you can do is be true to that pain. Pay allegiance to that. So step two is be with it. Kind of sidle up next to it. Start to wrap your, your mind, your heart, your, your arms around it. Just to get to know it a little bit more. Know the enemy, as it says in, the, in Sun Tzu, the art of war. Know thy enemy. The next two steps is really where we start to ramp it up. Or ramp it in, I should say. So the third step is you start to examine it. You start to look at it. <clears throat> now, this is interesting. It doesn't mean you pop all the way back out to the observational thing. No. This is a type of investigation um, or examination that takes place somatically, takes place with your, with your body. So yes, you're helping with a question. You can ask yourself, and these questions actually send the mind in this direction. What is this thing called pain? Really? Have you ever bothered to take a look? And when you do that, you're sending the mind in, in the right direction. You're sending it in. What, what is this pain made of? What, what exactly is this thing that I have spent so much of my life trying to avoid? And so for the analytic type people, you know, scientists, academics type, they groove on this because they can bring a little bit of that. They dance back out. They have this investigative lens. But again, the difference here is this is a somatic embodied visceral examination. You really want to start to look into it, feel it. Like, what exactly is this thing? And so the last one, and then I'll pause. Um, we can centrifuge, you know, talk about any of these in much more detail. The last step is really the crowning jewel. And so this last step is when you completely unite with the pain. You become one with it. And so the difference between this and stage and uh, step two, step two is be with the pain. Step four is be the pain. Because step two is still dualistic. And even step three is still dualistic. I'm examining the pain. I'm feeling the pain. I'm witnessing the pain. Each one is, is more intimate, more non-dual, but it doesn't become non-dualistic till stage four. And at stage four, this is where it gets extremely interesting and really profound. It's like um, so difficult to talk about non-duality. I mean, basically, it's impossible, right? So putting this into words is not the easiest thing to do. But paraphrasing an amazing line from Trungpa Rinpoche in his legendary introduction to the Tibetan Book of the Dead, when I first read this 20 years ago, I was just floored, where he says, and I'm extrapolating a little bit, but fundamentally, if you become one with your pain, there's no one to hurt. Another way he put it is the absolute experience 
of duality is the experience of non-duality. Now, this is a big one. This is a big one. And this is something that only can be sussed out when you actually take the time to do this. The absolute experience of duality is the experience of non-duality. By becoming one with your pain, there's no one to hurt. Then what are you left with? Well, you've deconstructed not only suffering, because that's a construct. You've deconstructed not only pain, because that's a construct. You've returned it to what it really is, intense, raw, sensory awareness. And what that feels like is ineffable. It, it's really hard to put into words because on one level, it doesn't feel good, conventionally good, unless you're talking about something like basic goodness. But here's the kicker. It also doesn't feel bad. It's just this ineffable, intense, raw sensory awareness, devoid of both the experience and the experiencer. So this last step, and then I'll pause because I know, whoa, we're going into the deep end here. This last step is yoking with it, uniting with it. And so if you look at the acronym here, it's O-B-E-Y. Observe, be, examine, yoke. Obey, a new order of relationship to unwanted experience. So I'll pause to come up for air um, so we can take this anywhere yeah. you want to. Thanks, Andrew. I want to see if we can deepen our understanding of how to do these four steps. Mm -hmm. So I think that the first step, people get that. That's my sense. Like, oh, I've, I've been trained enough. If they're with us in this conversation this far and they haven't, you know, gone off and said, I want to do something else, they've understood this notion of being a witness to yeah. whatever's going on, whether that's thoughts, feelings, physical pain, I can witness it. All right. Step number two, mm -hmm. I can be with it and I can yeah. be with it at the level of sensation. Yep. Oh, I'm with it. I feel the heat. I feel the strange tingling quality, mm -hmm. whatever it might be. I can start to be with it without a story. Right. I think people can also have experience of that. Now we get to step three, examine the pain yeah. and use some of these questions, mm -hmm. you know, like what is the real nature? And I know one uh, question that a teacher I was working with asked me recently, who's feeling this right now? That's it. Who's feeling That's it. the pain? That's it. And, you know, the answer I felt like, because it was a very painful experience, was F you. I'm feeling the pain. Uh, right. I don't know who's feeling the pain. Shut right. up. I, I'm sitting here feeling the pain. Right. So how do we deepen into this analytical yeah. meditation if we're not yeah. used to doing an analytical Spot, meditation? These questions are so great, Tammy. So, so a couple of things is, one is, you can spend a little bit of time becoming with the um, becoming familiar with the basic practice of analytic meditation, also known as vipassana, um, a form of insight. This is a classic practice where where you take anything. Let, let's just say we we're talking earlier about anger, fear. What you do with with classic analytic meditation um, is, you know, let's say anger. There's so much anger in the world today. You simply take a really close, like a good investigative reporter, a good scientist, you take a really good close look at this phenomenal arising to which we append the label anger, fear, and you examine it. In this, in this case, it's more a conceptual examination. So this is a little bit more conjoined with what we would call step one, you know, classic investigation conjoined with step one. 
you look at anger, you start to investigate it. You're like, what exactly is it made of? Sometimes even in traditions, it's slightly contrived, but you get the idea. The traditional text, because this is a classic practice, will say, okay, what is, what is, the, what is the color? What is its shape? And, and, and sometimes the questions are like, well, really? Well, they're designed to basically allow you to, to come in, to investigate, to take a look. And because for many people, this is somewhat new, we're not familiar with it yet. There's another iteration of that definition. This does take a little bit of time. But I would recommend that people perhaps examine something a little bit more over the counter that may not be quite as crazily charged as what we're talking about here, where, again, anger, any emotion, even passion, desire, doesn't really matter. Just take a closer look. Like, okay, exactly what is this? Is it, is it energy? Is it, what is this thing, man? And so... The, the, the traditions, interestingly enough, will not give you the answers initially. When you're doing classic investigations like this, almost like a koan, really, this is a little bit like a koan, they don't give you the answers. They want you to go out there, or in there in this case, and find out for yourself. So that's what I might recommend as a preliminary practice here for step three, is, is to work even irrespective of this four-stage schema just take any experience in your life, any emotion, whatever. And like a good first-person scientist, just take a good close look. Start to ask some questions. Once you have that, then you can re-enter it in this kind of more charged environment within the context of the reverse practices, bringing that little bit of proficiency and familiarity with you. That makes it a little bit more um, digestible for people. When, when, the, when the teacher asked you, you know, who is feeling it, and, and you said, well, F you, I'm feeling it. Another invitation for, for taking a look at the contraction. Because the actual, what brings about the illusion, and it is an illusion, it's a construct. What brings about the illusion that I am feeling that is in fact a contraction. It is one contraction giving birth to twins, self and other. So now this is brief interjection back into, into stage four. I invite you to take a very close look. What is it that actually creates the sense that I am feeling that? Underneath it all, there's a contraction. There's a referencing taking place. And it happens, Tammy, it happens so fast, so constantly. That's why we don't see it. And to give you one intimation of how fast it is, how fast the mind is, let's take my voice. What's basically happening here is neutral compression and rarefraction waves hitting your ear. So, for instance, if I was to just blah, 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 there's no meaning there. That's just sound waves. But try listening to your native language. Try listening to my voice as if it was a foreign language. It's almost impossible. That's how fast the mind is. I say a word, like word, and you don't hear it as, as kind of denatured compression refraction waves as sound. It immediately brings meaning. That's how fast the mind is. And so this, again, is what you start to see when you slow down in meditation. You start to actually see this, this um, space between the phenomenal rising and the imputation of meaning. In this case, the very sense that I am feeling the pain. So I understand, whoa, this is super subtle. This is like graduate level. This is the highest reaches of both open awareness and the reverse meditations. 
And this is, in fact, where these practices truly become non-dualistic and spiritual. But again, I don't want to spend too much time there unless you want to go there. But this is worth throwing into the mix because, man, is it revelatory. It will show you what you're really, what's really going on. I want to uh, continue to uh, give our listeners and myself more <laughs> good tips, more good cool. tips on how to get all the way through all four stages. So in this third stage, mm -hmm. one of the things I've noticed is this tendency to kind of bounce off. Like oh, yeah. I'm asking questions like, you know, what's the shape? What's the color? Who's the experience or the paint? And it doesn't take very long. And I'm like, you know, I think I'm going to go, you know, get a bowl of granola or something. <laughs> like I don't right. want to, like, like I leave very quickly. Right. And I, I wonder what helps us stay with this. Well, one is exactly what we're talking about here, establishing the right view. And actually what you're saying is, is, is lovely. It's quite sensitive that, that is, this is in fact the way it kind of works is, is you're actually pinging off these, especially with stage three. And this is why stage three and stage four, as I mentioned earlier, this is where this practice really ramps up. This is where it gets really interesting and profound. So yes, at first you're, you're, you're again, you're flickering between this, this kind of directionality suggested by the questions themselves. They're pointing the mind in a particular direction. And then you actually re temporarily release that. It's like, it's like sending, a, you know, just like shooting arrow, send it the mind in the right direction. And then you simply see where it goes. And then if you find yourself getting foggy, losing your way, it's like, what am I doing here? Am I really doing this right? Then you come back out and you reinstate the question. And so when I'm doing this in a, in a guided way, this is what I'll say. It's like a little bit like hitting a gong. You hit the gong, that's the question, then there's the inquiry. And because again, it's so new, it's so unfamiliar, and it's like, what? You know, it, it just takes a while to get the hang of it until you start to hum with it. So you strike the gong, you ask the question, you look, and then when it fades, you usually find the mind gets a little bit loose, sloppy, that's when the thought comes in, oh, I think I'd rather go have granola or whatever else, then you hit the gong again. And you play with this, you know, this classic Maxim Tammy, not too tight, not too loose. This is so important with not only this stage, but with every aspect of these reverse practices. And at first, because these practices are so intense and so unusual, if you're going to err, I err on the side of being too loose so that you don't become some like type A spiritual masochist. Um, but it's just a matter of finding our way. You know, it, it's like we ping off extremes. I mean, it, it's like a pinball. We ping off extremes, and then eventually we find our own way. And, and that's the other thing that's so beautiful about these practices is they're highly empowering. They're suggestive. They're, they send the mind in particular directions, journeys within. But then as an intrepid explorer, psychonaut of the heart and mind, you're the one that's making this journey. You're the one that's tripping and falling. You're the one that's making these discoveries for yourself. And that's where the stuff gets so profound. And, and again, for me, this is what really brought it to life is when I started having these intense life experiences. And I, I was not taught this in retreat. I learned this stuff through trial and error, man. Pinging and falling and faking and f stumbling and whatever. But slowly, I started to get the hang of it. And then because you're actually heading towards a truer relationship to these phenomenal risings, it becomes increasingly more natural. It only appears natural, unnatural at first, because of our contrast, because we're so habituated to these avoidance strategies. And so for me, I can tell you after doing this for 20 years, 
these practices are now automatic for me. I mean, case in point, I, you know, I stubbed my toe this morning, like really hard. Instead of the usual, oh, crap, reactivity, it was, oh, dot, 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 meditate. In other words, oh, open. And so I've done this so often. And even last year when I was going through some really intensive um, you know, diagnostics and tests and surgeries, I mean, not a day at the beach, I cannot tell you how often this practice was at my side. That's actually what gave me even additional confidence to like, hey, we got to get this out there. We got to get people to know. So I'll pause to make sure I'm, I'm hitting your sweet spot here, but it's just a matter of familiarity. Let's go into step <laughs> four, which is my this favorite. dissolving of the experiencer into the experience, yoking to the experience. Yeah. And to help us have a deeper appreciation of what this is actually like, take me into it from your own experience. Like you stubbed yeah. your toe this morning. What did step four what was that like yeah. with the pain? Because a stubbed toe really hurts for a little bit. Oh, yeah. What was what was that like? What was it? Describe it. Yeah. So this one's, you know, I have to say that these instantaneous iterations are actually a little bit more difficult than the more sustained like. So I, I will address both. Um, on one level, it's actually a little bit easier when you're experiencing a kind of a chronic condition. Um, whether it's heartbreak or whether it's physical pain, because you ha actually have a little bit more time to kind of wrap your mind or open your mind to these. But again, with some familiarity there, what happens to me in levels of instantaneous, like stubbing my toe is, hey, there at first, there is this, this still residue of survival level, like, whoa, you know, bang. And I do feel that contraction, absolutely positively. And there's no doubt whatsoever at, at first, even though I may not say it, excuse me, there's at first this absolutely authentic, honest, like I am, I am in pain for sure. I mean, I'm, I'm not that proficient in these practices yet, but because I've done it so often, I feel that contraction. See, that's the kicker, Tammy. I feel that contraction and I feel the localization that comes from it. And because I've done this for so long, I feel the, the, the simultaneous generation of me and the kind of solidified reified status of the pain, for sure. But because I've done it so long, then what I do is I go, I go right to stage four. And I allow myself to die into, I allow myself to dissolve into that intense sensory awareness. And um, in so doing, it's, it's just like I'm saying, it's, it's, it's because these two co-emerge, you know, sense of self and object, uh, sense of self and other, subject and object, I experiencing that, they, they co-emerge, they arise together. Um, stage three, by the way, can help you deconstruct this in, in this more analytic way. But fundamentally, if I go deeply into the experience or deeply into the experiencer. See, it doesn't matter because they lean on each other. If I go 100% into one or the other, because they lean on each other, they collapse into each other. And again, this is it's like, what is this guy talking about, man? Well, I'm trying to put non-duality into dualistic terms, and that is impossible. It doesn't work. Non-duality doesn't fit into dualistic mediums. So the best I can do is, is, is throw noodles against the wall, finger paint, 
and then invite you to take a look for yourself, armed with a little bit of experience, with a little bit of patience, a little bit of curiosity to see, in fact, what happens when you make this journey for yourself and you start to um, literally discover these types of experiences. So I'm not sure that's entirely a satisfactory answer. I'm not satisfied yet, Andrew. So I'm going to ask my question one more time. You stubbed uh, your toe. Okay. It feels all like uh, prickly and hot. And, you know, there's this ow quality coming. What happened in stage four? What happened to the me who was going ouch? Yeah, well, at first, it feels like everything you said. It, all these labels I can append to that experience, right? For sure. And that is, in fact, indicative that I haven't gotten to stage four. See, that is, in fact, characteristic that I'm still experiencing that. I can append these labels to it. Um, I can have this um, kind of traditional relationship to it. But, you know, the the invitation and, and the trick, so to speak, is perhaps recognizing that, noticing the very subtle contractions and, and distractions that that provides, and then literally just trying to just dive in. Um, I'm trying to think of, here, here, here's an example. This comes from T.S. Eliot. Um, it's really quite beautiful where he writes in, in one of his beautiful writings, you know, music heard so deeply that it is not heard at all. And so maybe one way to gain an intimation of this is when we look at other experiences that, that could perhaps be a little bit more on the pleasant spectrum. When you're, when you're completely um, enraptured by something like music or even tremendous beauty and art, you know, you, you actually have at that moment, it's as if the music hears itself. Music hurts so deeply, it, it's not heard at all. And so that could be a little bit more over-the-counter example of these types of experiences. But again, even there, it's subtle. Because, I mean, if it wasn't subtle, we'd all be enlightened. We'd all have this kind of non-dualistic relationship to whatever arises. But there are instances when uh, when we're like madly in love with something, somebody, not not romantic, passionate love, but unconditional, open love, where we 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 you know we lose the sense of self in the other, and so perhaps until someone gets more familiar with these untoward, seemingly untoward um, experiences, we can gain intimations of this kind of process and more conventional experiences. And so I, I still know, I realize this in itself is not particularly satisfactory, but again, the invitation is find out for yourself, explore these things for yourself and then come back and you try to put it into words. <laughs> I felt somewhat satisfied when you started talking about the experience of listening to music that there gave you me, you know, that yeah. I, I could melt into that. Okay. Two more things I, okay. I want you to address for our listeners. One is you talked about how one of the ways we can become sensitive to contractions in the form of our reactivity yes. is to take on a practice of not complaining. Oh, and yeah, I thought, I think that might be even harder than like stage three and four of reverse meditation. So tell me how you do that yeah. when you feel like complaining. And there's plenty, of course, in any given day to complain about. What do you do? Oh, I'm glad you brought that up because talk about applicable, right? I mean, how many times does this happen in a day? And this is also fairly early in the book. So there, there's, as you know, because you read it, there are dozens and dozens of these little micro 
uh, meditation snacks, these little practices, contemplations, starting from like chapter two as a way to work your way into the deeper dives. And so relatively early on, I bring on this kind of anti-complaint meditation, and I use this all the time. And so simple, simple doesn't always mean easy, but simple. The next time you feel the urge to complain, no shortage of grist, you know, no shortage of material there, pause for a second, right? Reverse your strategy. So this is a micro reverse meditation. Instead of expressing yourself with some expletive or whatever, pause. Sometimes I'll literally be opening my mouth going, and then I'll stop. Pause, look with them. That's the reverse strategy. And here's the investigation. What am I feeling right now that I just don't want to feel? Stay with that. And I promise you, take a look. You're going to find some level of contraction. You're going to find some level of dissonance or discord or unwanted experience in your body. That's what creates the urge to express yourself. So, it's so to me, this is, this is probably kept me out of a lot of trouble. Feel the urge to complain? Pause. Look within at stage three. What am I feeling? Not thinking. What am I feeling right now that I just don't want to feel? And then what do you do? You stay with that. And then very briefly, I have to throw this in because it's so compelling. The neuroscientists will tell you this. Within 90 seconds, the biochemical markers for an emotional eruption will be self-liberated within your body. Your body knows how to purify the stuff. The innate wisdom of the body will purify this thing. And so this is helpful because if you're in a funk all day long or you're in a nasty, pissy mood, you're the one that's doing CPR on this thing. You're the one that's keeping it alive long after it should be dead. But this to me is, a this has been such a helpful practice. Pause, look within, what am I feeling right now? I don't want to feel, and stay with that. It's a powerful preparatory practice for the deeper dive into the reverse meditations. Make sense? It does. Very good, very helpful, very accessible. Now, one totally. final question for you, okay. Andrew. You know, you're, I would say you're a scholar. You're very <laughs> well read, very well read, and you have access to a lot of uh, ideas, critical thinking, and yet you write in reverse meditation very clearly that conceptualization is a form of contraction. Oh, for sure. That's a, that's a quote from the book. So yeah. how do you think in a way that is open, productive, oh, beautiful. healthy, uh, as the scholar that you are? How do you relate in a healthy way to your conceptual mind? Oh, that's such a great question. Yeah, well, first of all, it's, it's understanding, again, like with, with contraction, it's understanding the promise and peril of this aspect of the human mind and the human condition, the intellectual faculty. And, uh, you know, just very briefly, parenthetically, um, some scholars estimate that this is the new kid on the block. Our ability to rationalize and think conceptually maybe goes back 30,000 years. Much deeper is mythopoetic, mythopoetic um, capacities relating to the uh, reality and in, in, in kind of non-rational, um, mythic ways. So the conceptual thing has tremendous power. There's nothing wrong, just like with, with um, contraction, nothing wrong with thinking. There's nothing wrong with concept. 
we want to use our thoughts. We want to use our concepts. We don't want to allow them to use us. Um, and this is obviously what happens with such deleterious effects in this environment. And so there's a difference in my languaging. There's a difference between cursive and discursive thinking. So cursive thinking is thinking and concepts that are on track, that's kept in line. This is really important. We couldn't function in the world without it. And, and honestly, the reason I have all these books behind me and the reason I read all this stuff voraciously, part of it is, is really um, to increase my skill set in learning how to relate more effectively with others. And so conceptuality can, can therefore be used in a really healthy way as an upaya, as a way to meet others where they're at. And so I roll a lot in the academic scientific community. I work with scientists all the time. I hang with these peeps. I do, I'm, I'm, I'm just with this community a lot. And so if I can't speak their language, man, they're not going to listen to me, right? So that's kind of one reason I do it. And then, um, oh, there was something else I was going to say around this. Oh, oh yes. That when you when you actually look at the nature of thought itself, there is such a thing as non-dualistic thinking. Thinking is it's, it, you know this. Thinking in and of itself is this is just the play, the shine of the mind. Thinking is never the problem. Inappropriate linking thinking is the problem. Linking concepts is that's the issue. And so there is such a thing as non-dualistic thought. This is thought that arises devoid of the superimposition of another thought. In other words, it's a ventilated thought. So very briefly, because boy, this is a big topic. Think of a, think of a thought like a, a, a campfire spark flying out in the nighttime sky, right? Well, in an open mind, that spark dissolves harmlessly in the background of space. That's, you, you could kind of relate that to the kind of a non-dualist expression. Thought arises non-dualistically. What creates dualistic thinking is that same thought arises. It doesn't dissolve in the background space. It lands on a vat of gasoline, right? And then you have this incendiary relationship to the contents of your mind and all the explosive deleterious effects that arise from that inappropriate relationship. So something like that, does that make sense? It does, Andrew. Say and yes. to it does actually. <laughs> and to conclude our conversation, you talked about how reverse meditation is a meditation for our time. What's so. your vision of how more and more people might become familiar, to use that word, with naturally doing reverse meditation and the positive healing impact that could have at this particular time? What's your vision of that? Oh my gosh, what a beautiful question. Um, well, you know, I, I have an open-ended vision. Um, I have aspirations. Um, it's why I write. It's why I wrote this book. I have aspirations that, you know, maybe these skill sets will be as of benefit, um, as beneficial to others as it's been to me. And again, I want to restate this again and again. That's why I wrote this book. It's not because of all the doctrinal underpinning and everything else. It's because of my direct experience over, at this point, decades. And it's like, hey, man, if I can do this, anybody can do this. So my aspiration around this, Tammy, is, is somewhat open-ended. It, it, it's like, um, what do Laka Rinpoche say? Expectation is premeditated disappointment. I have a very open um, aspiration around this, that like throwing seeds, you know, on one level, 
you know this from the Lojon training slogans in Tibetan Buddhism, right? Don't expect applause, right? One just does the best that one can. One throws these seeds out, whether they take root or not. Hey, I'm not responsible for that. The best I can do is, is perhaps plant some seeds and see what happens. But um, with your kind generosity, with Sounds True, I'm um, standing behind this book, which means so much to me, the capacity to uh, reach a wider audience and share with them a, a skill set that, again, has been of such an inestimable benefit to me. And just very briefly, again, I'm not, I'm not foreign to this kind of stuff. I was a dentist for like 35 years. I know all about the psychophysiology and the pharmacology of pain. I've written probably 50,000 prescriptions. This stuff is not familiar to me. I mean, not unfamiliar to me. I have spent decades in the pain business. And so somewhat skate, I'm sliding around your question. Um, <clears throat> I know a little bit what I'm talking about when we're, when we're dealing, especially with physical pain. And these skill sets to me with the patients when I was working with them, augmenting medication with meditation, playing on that. Um, perhaps in this day and age when people are in so much pain, again, this is when we grow. You go to a bookstore, you're in a heap of hurt. You look at a book that talks about reverse meditation and bringing hardship and pain, and you're in a lot of pain. You might want to pick it up and say, gosh, I wonder what this book has to say. That's the best I can do. It makes me happy. I've been speaking with Andrew Holacek. He is the author of the new book, Reverse Meditation, how to use your pain and most difficult emotions as the doorway to inner freedom. Thanks everyone for being with us. Sounds true, waking up the world. Thanks, Danny. And if you'd like to watch Insights at the Edge on video and participate in the after show Q&A session with our guests, come join us on Sounds True One, a new membership community featuring award-winning original shows, live classes, community learning, guided meditations, and more with the leading wisdom teachers of our time. Use promo code PODCAST to get your first month free. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. Sounds true. Waking up the world.